what should I wear? We have all asked this really important question many times in life. There's a wedding. Well, what, what is the dress code? What's the attire? We do a graduation party or a baby shower, perhaps a first date. What is the appropriate dress? I don't want to stick out like a, a sore thumb or give offense to the other parties in attendance. I mean, even, even going to a football game at this time of year, you've got to ask, well, what am I going to wear? Is it going to be really cold? Do I need a sweater? Is it going to be warm out? Should I be in a t-shirt? I don't, I don't want to be uncomfortable. To dress according to the occasion. I want to be appropriately outfitted. As we turn our attention once more this morning to Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is concerned with giving us a Christian dress code. No, it is not a suit and a tie or even ankle-length dresses, as much as I love those. Rather, Paul calls us to be dressed for war. Now, the second part of the book, devotion, is all about how we live in light of those wonderful truths, in light of of the doctrine that's been revealed to us. It tells us not how to become Christians, but how to live now that we are Christians. Not as if we are given instructions, hey, do X, Y, and Z, and you will have made yourself right with God. No, that's to get the gospel backwards. What the gospel is, is that you have been made right with God, therefore you live this way. We live from the acceptance we have in Christ, not for acceptance. We've tried to summarize it this way. We've said, we have been adopted into the family of God. And now, we are learning to live up to the family name. Kind of a fun way to say it is now that we're in the family, we're, we're taking on some of those family characteristics. And, and those of us who are in the family of God, well, we, we walk a certain way. There's a certain gait to our steps. And you'll notice the word walk is sprinkled throughout Ephesians, and the book is, is built around it in many ways. Walk is just a Hebrew idiom for live. It's about how you live. And so we recognize very early on in the devotion section, chapter 4, we're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're called to live with one another in a way that is, makes us accountable to one another and connected with one another. We're to throw off false doctrines and to embrace true doctrines. We're not to walk any longer as the Gentiles or the world walks, darkened in their mind, the wrong understanding of reality. No, we are to walk as those who have had our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit of God. Or to put on the, the new self, to walk in love as Christ walked in love. We are to walk as children of the light. And we are to walk not as unwise, but as wise. That's verse 15. That's the last occurrence of the verb walk in the book of Ephesians, and it hangs like a banner over the conclusion of the book. 
And so we talked about what it means to walk wisely in light of the evil days in which we live and in light of the spiritual war that is swirling around us. And we said two things are required. We want to know the will of the Lord. We know that by studying His Word and studying His Word in community as we submit ourselves to it and the Spirit awakens us to its meaning and significance. We know the will of the Lord and we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to pursue that fullness of the Spirit by singing to one another and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, by giving thanks together always for everything to God the Father, and by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit and we pursue a deeper fullness of the Spirit still in community together, singing to one another, giving thanks together, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul fills out the last a little bit, and that's where we were the last handful of weeks or so. And now he gives us a third thing we need to do. We need to know the will of the Lord. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we need to be strong in the Lord. That's verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. The reason for the call to be strong comes to us in verse 12, We need to be strong in the Lord's strength because we do not wrestle merely against flesh and blood, but against this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil. Now, of course, we know that there is such a thing as flesh and blood evil. Paul knows this. He experienced it. It was flesh and blood evil that imprisoned him, had him flogged, stoned, Paul was acquainted with flesh and blood evil. I mean, we, we know just from the course of history that flesh and blood evil is a real thing. The world has been through world wars. It has endured Marxism. We know the names of Mao and Stalin and Sanger and Hitler. There's real evil in the world. But what Paul wants us to recognize is that behind that evil is a spiritual evil. Behind uh, the apparent enemy is our true enemy. Those spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. There, There is an unseen realm filled with unseen enemies of God and of the church. Specifically, we think of the devil or Satan, and generally all those demons and hosts who cooperate with him. One of the things we pointed out last week and is necessary to point out again this week is that we are at war whether we would like to acknowledge it or not. Remember we used that wonderful scene from Lord of the Rings, and I encourage you to read it again, where the king of Rohan doesn't want to enter into war against Sauron and Saruman. 
And he says, I, I would not risk open war. And Aragorn tells him, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. And his point is, the battle is coming to you and you are going to have to deal with it whether you want to or not. And so it's best to stand and to fight and to prepare yourself for what is before you because you are at war. Likewise, church, we are at war against a spiritual enemy. And our enemy has a strategy. You see that? Verse 11, we want to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This whole section is about being strengthened by God so that we can stand firmly in, on the rock of our salvation. That we can stand firmly against the devil's attempts to destroy our faith and to divide the church. We'll see the word stand in verse 11 and verse 13 twice and in verse 14. He's saying, you need to stand your ground and you shall not be moved because you are strengthened in the Lord, equipped with His spiritual armor so that when the evil one assaults you, in whatever way he might assault you, you can have victory. It's important to note that spiritual victory doesn't mean being freed from hardship or suffering, but keeping the faith despite suffering. It's continuing to trust in Jesus in the midst of loss. We see this in the life of Job, do we not? Job, remember, loses his whole family, loses his wealth, finds himself in dust and ashes, scraping boils on his skin with broken pottery. And from his perspective, this is all just a series of unfortunate events. Suffering has, has come upon him unexpectedly. And we as, we, we as readers of that book know that it hasn't just come upon him. That indeed, it's come to him because of the work of Satan. Because of the work of unseen spiritual enemies. And further, we know that God has ordained the suffering in Job's life. We also know that Satan would have Job curse God and die. And yet we know that God's purposes in Job's suffering are deeper. God intends to display His glory in the unseen realm. He plans to demonstrate His goodness and righteousness through the life of Job. So that what Satan intends for evil, well, God intends for good. We hear that in the mouth of Joseph after his brothers. They throw him into a pit. They sell him into slavery. He, he ends up in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife lies about Joseph, making advances on her, when the opposite's the case. He goes into prison. He interprets dreams. He remains in prison. And eventually, he's raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, and he's able to provide for God's people. His brothers come looking for food. He recognizes them. And eventually he forgives them. And what does he say? He says, you meant your actions against me for evil. But God, well, he meant those actions for good. And it reminds us of Jesus, does it not? Jesus who was betrayed and sold out by his brother, Judas, eventually was cast into a pit, the grave, on the cross by evil and wicked men. 
course, Satan and, and demons, the spiritual powers of darkness, they intended it for evil. I mean, how could it not be a great victory for them to eliminate God's Messiah? They looked upon the cross and the tomb. They saw Jesus' blood running down from, from His brow and from the nails in His hands. And this appeared to them to be a great death blow to God. They intended it for evil. But God, God intended it for good. The earth shook. Graves opened up. Disciples ran. And the Gospel went forth. Salvation has come to Jew and Gentile alike. Peace with God can be had because God became a man and died on the cross for sinful men. Evil one had no idea that in pursuing his agenda, God was actually working out his. Yes, there was unjust and incredible suffering on the cross. But there was also the justice of God being poured out on Christ for all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in Him. And so non-Christian, I want you to know you can have peace with God. You might have experienced great evil and great suffering in your life. I want you to know God the end of time is going to reveal to us how He has leveraged all evil and all suffering for our good, ultimately, and His glory. Now, Christian, believe in Jesus. He died so that all who come to Him might live. Christian, remember the cross when you are tempted to doubt and to despair. Look to Christ. And when you find yourself in the evil day, and it, it seems that, that the ground you are standing upon is shifting, and you find yourself maybe a little bit a wobbly sort of Christian, remember the cross and call to mind this passage that God has equipped you so that you might stand, so that you might fight. So that you might endure till the end. God has not left you to rely upon your own strength. He's given you His strength. He said, be strong, not in your strength, in the Lord. In the strength of His might, not your might. So that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. A children's story I read to my kids pretty often. There's a whole series of them. It's called Frog and Toad. Some of you kids might be familiar with Frog and Toad. They're great, great buddies, great friends. There's a, one story in the, the book called Cookies. And in it, Frog and Toad decide that they need to exercise their willpower in order to stop eating cookies. For some of you, that sounds a little too familiar. But no matter what they do, they keep eating the cookies after they come up with plan after plan. And finally, in their, their penultimate scheme, they go, we will get all the cookies, we'll put them in a box, 
put top on the box, we'll wrap the box up with rope, we'll put the box on top of this really high bookshelf, and then we, we will have willpower to not eat the cookies. And then frog or toad, I don't know which one it is, one of them says to the other, it's toad, toad says to frog, you know frog, we can just, we can get the ladder, we can get the box down, we can cut the ribbon, we can open the box, and we can eat the cookies. But so eventually they go outside, and they, they toss the cookies out in the yard, and the birds come and eat the cookies. And they say something to the effect, one says to the other, I don't know which one, he says, now we have plenty of willpower, but no cookies. It, and the other one declares, I'm going home to bake a cake. <laughs> Friends, we, we are as frog and toad if we are depending on our own strength and on our own willpower. We are called here not to depend on ourselves or our own ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but we are called to depend on God. Not our willpower, but, but His strength so that we can stand in the evil day. You see, that evil day, I think, has a twofold meaning. I, I think it refers to the last days in which we now live, right? Those started at Pentecost, Peter tells us. Because we live in evil days, I think it, it refers to that, that great last day when God judges evil. But I also, I also think it has in mind those particular days in our own individual lives when evil strikes us. When, when suffering comes. Our church has been no stranger to suffering recently. We have seen Beloved friends depart. We've had jobs lost. We have watched loved ones die. Brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers. Some of us struggling with sicknesses. There is plenty of evil and suffering in our lives. This is part of Satan's strategy to shake our faith. His goal is to destroy your faith. You know that, right? His goal is that in the midst of your hardship, when the night seems darkest, that instead of remembering what God has said in the light and saying, I will trust in the Lord, He gives and takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, His goal is for you in that deepest night to say, there is no God. And if there is, He doesn't care for me. If He did, he wouldn't, he wouldn't allow this to come to me. And if He's there, I'm mad at Him. This is His doing. This is His fault. Friends, don't doubt in the light what God, or doubt in the dark what God has said in the light. Stand firm. Draw on God's strength by putting on the divine armor. Now, before we get to that, though, I do also want to stress, some, there are other evil days. I think there's two kind of ways Satan does this. Uh, one is by costing us something. This is when hardship comes into our lives. He brings the evil day to us that way. It's apparent. But sometimes the evil day, it backfires on Satan a little bit. And so um, think of uh, when... The Twin Towers fell on 
the following Sunday, what happened? I mean, churches were filled to overflowing with people. Well, he switched strategies. He went, this is, this is real evil, and you know what we need? We need the strength of God. But then, weeks turned into months, months turned into years, and the churches kind of went back to normal. You see, this is Satan's other strategy. He likes to cost us things, evil does, but he also likes to get us to do some coasting, if you will, so that we don't recognize our need for God. It's similar, if you remember, to the Israelites, God warns them. He says, don't, I'm paraphrasing, don't become so fat and happy that you forget me when you're in the promised land. And of course, they get fat and happy, and they forget God. I think this is a, a strategy that continues to be employed by our enemy. We, we have so much. We have what we need. We get in our routines. It's normal. We're coasting along. and We don't really need to cry out to the Lord. We're in the middle of an evil day, and we have no idea about it. Our enemy is assaulting us, and we, we're not even on alert at all. We're not dressed for battle. Instead, we're distracted to death. Entertained to the point of blindness. Friends, we need to be on our guards against both the costing and the coasting strategies of Satan. We need to be vigilant. We need to wake up and put on the divine armor so that we might stand firm against the strategies of the enemy. Look with me at verse 14. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness prepared, I'm sorry, the readiness, the word can be also translated prepared, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts or arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. This armor that we are to put on is a metaphor. And it's not very different at all from Paul's exhortation in our scripture reading this morning. Remember we're told to put on the armor of light in Romans 13, as well as to put on Christ. And earlier in Ephesians, Paul tells us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. The idea here is similar. He's saying, take on and live in light of those realities that are true of you in Christ. Right? It's a metaphor about the means by which we appropriate the strength of God to ourselves. The strength is ours in Christ. We have access to it through the Holy Spirit. We, we can draw on God's strength by way of prayer. The idea of putting on the armor 
It simply means to step into the experiential reality of the truth of the gospel. In other words, it's taking kind of head knowledge, what you know to be true, and, and applying it to your heart. Right? Because we can know these things, these truths that are symbolized in the armor, but they will not serve us in any way if they are divorced from dependence on God. They're divorced from prayer. Let's, let's walk through quickly these different pieces of the outfit. So first you have the belt of truth. This truth here is just the truth that's communicated to us in God's words. Those doctrine, the gospel. You get the image of a, of a soldier, probably a Roman one, right? Paul was in prison. He looks around. He sees Roman soldiers. He sees their, the stuff they've got on. But also, remember, Dan read for us from Isaiah earlier this morning, images of the divine warrior, of the armor that the Messiah wore. And you'll notice that each of these pieces correspond not just to the Roman soldier, but to the divine warrior who's featured throughout the Old Testament. We are to see in these pieces of clothing the very armor that is worn by the Messiah. We have the same equipment that was worn by the Messiah King. Belt of truth. Kind of like an image of a warrior putting his belt on, girding up his loins, getting, you know, getting ready to move, ready for some action. Holds the whole thing together. Next you have the, the breastplate of righteousness. I think this refers as a, a twofold reference. One is the, the idea of forensic justification. That is, being declared right with God. This is what happens when we put our faith in Christ. It means that when the evil one accuses us, that we are to remind ourselves that we have been declared right with God. On the flip side, and I actually think probably more pertinent to the immediate context, is this idea of the fruit of righteousness growing in our lives. That there is an ethical integrity that we put on that helps defend us against the sinful suggestions of the father of lies. And next we come to the shoes for our feet. You know, shoes make the outfit, they say. Ironically, we find that the gospel of peace is a weapon suitable for war. I think this also has, works in two directions. One is we remind ourselves of the gospel of peace, the gospel we have received. We remind ourselves of the cross and we stand firm. But the other side of it is, is I think that we can battle against those unseen spiritual forces of evil by proclaiming the gospel to ourselves, yes, and to a lost and dying world. It's interesting, this comment on feet reminds us of, of a quote from Isaiah that Paul pulls in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. He says, As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Or Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, 
and hearing through the Word of Christ. Next, we're going to jump down to, to 17. See that the helmet of salvation. I think this is very simply that our salvation is secured. We, we are safe from any attacks upon us. Christ has accomplished our salvation and therefore uh, nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no, no sword, no principalities, no powers, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're to take from the helmet of salvation. And we see back, I'm going backwards now, in verse 16, that we are in all circumstances to take up the shield of faith. Now, this shield is not, Paul doesn't have in his mind the kind of gladiator shield, that little circular one that they would use. Or when you think of like medieval knights, like those really, really tiny shields. He has in his mind the Roman shield, which could be really, really big. You could hide, it's like a door-sized thing. You can hide a whole person behind it. And the shield would often be dipped in water so that when the enemy would take arrows and, and dip them in some sort of pitch and ignite those arrows, uh, they'd shoot the arrow at the shield. But because of the dampness of the shield and the size of the shield, the person would be uh, protected from those attacks, but it would also be able to extinguish the arrows. Right? That, that image makes a whole lot of sense, right? And Paul knows this as he follows up. You have the shield of faith, and it's this shield that you're going to use to extinguish all the flaming darts or arrows of the evil one. And so it's, it's confidence in, it's faith in God that defends us against the assault of the evil one. Right? We, we walk by faith even when we can't see. And it's that faith, it's that clinging to Christ that ultimately defends us against the attacks of the evil one. It is interesting, we see that, that the enemy has a strategy. He schemes against us through costing and coasting. But he also has, has arrows that he looses in our direction. What are some of those arrows? I, I tried to come up with some ideas, and I'm, I'm sure you can this afternoon for, for homework. Think to yourself, what are some arrows that the evil one and his hosts loose in my direction? Here are some that I thought of. Doubt. It tempts us to doubt God's promises, God's goodness, God's sovereignty, God's providence. It causes us to doubt the gospel. Another one, worry. Satan tempts us to worry. You know, worry is nothing more than thinking that God is going to get things wrong. Do you realize you can only think that God is going to get things wrong if you believe you are the one who knows how to get things right? And this worry is actually a manifestation of pride. And Satan tempts us to worry and trust ourselves and how we think life should be and our plans rather than God. One of Satan's favorite arrows to loose upon the people of God is discouragement. Discouragement. It causes us to view our lives, our families, our, our work, situation, through the lens of cynicism and hopelessness. 
Another arrow, perhaps his favorite, accusation. He, he, he says to us, do you really think the creator of the universe could love someone like you? Your sin, it can't be forgiven. Are you serious? You know how wicked your deepest thoughts are. You know how prideful you are. No one would save you. You're not worth saving. God died for you. Come on. There's some of his favorite arrows. And with each of them, we must meet them with the shield of faith. Confidence, not in our plans or in our thoughts or in the temptations of the evil one, but confidence in God. We must not only extinguish those arrows with the shield, but we must strike back with the sword of the Spirit. Sword of the Spirit, which is the very Word of God. I want to point out the sword is not made up of the Spirit. The sword is God's Word. And it's the Holy Spirit that animates that Word. It's the Holy Spirit that makes God's Word work. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the sword sharp. With me? And so, by praying... We, we say, God, I need you to help me submit myself to your word. No one understands the Bible or God's word apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. I've probably shared this with you before, but I'll do it again. Uh, when I was at WVU, I had a professor who knew the Bible forwards and backwards. But he was not a Christian. And he began every class by saying, uh, here's a special project. If you can prove the existence of God by way of getting a tape recording of his voice speaking on a tape recorder, uh, then you will pass my class regardless of anything. Flying colors. And then he would continue and say, it's my goal to convince you that there's no good reason for belief in God. And you'd undermine the faith of people there, he'd ask everybody, how many of you have, have read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia? And hands would go up. How many of you have read Harry Potter? And everybody's hands would go up. You know, and how many of you from cover to cover have read the Bible? A couple hands would go up. And he would say, if God really existed, and God really wrote a book, wouldn't you read it? You don't really believe in God, you see? He's an educated man, a smart man, he was my friend while I was at WVU. He knew the Word, but he didn't know the Word. It wasn't because he wasn't smart enough. It's because the Holy Spirit of God hadn't brought the truth of God's Word home to his heart. The Spirit of God that enables us to understand the Word of God. And yes, we've been equipped with historical, uh, grammatical, covenantal hermeneutics that help us to rightly read and understand uh, the words here. But those are worthless without the work of the Spirit. It is God's Word that we are to trust. It is God's Word that enables us to strike back at the enemy. It's Word 
is a sword. It is the Spirit that enables this sword to seal the darkness that is against us. Remember, Jesus uses it in Matthew 4. He's being tempted in the wilderness. And the devil says, Hey, if you're the Son of God, there's no need for you to be hungry. I know you're fasting. But you don't need to depend on the Lord, which is what you're expressing through your fasting. Depend on you. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil takes him to holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, look, if you're really the Son of God, prove it. Just jump from the temple. Doesn't God's word say that he will command his angels concerning you? And they'll swoop in and save you, and then this will prove that you're the Son of God. Jesus says, it is written, you shall not put your God to the test. And then lastly, the devil takes him to a high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he offers to Jesus a crown without a cross. He says, all of this can be yours if you will bow down and worship me. I'll give it to you. Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus meets the lies of Satan. He meets the arrows of Satan with the shield of faith, and then he fights back with the sword of the Spirit. Why Why does Rockfish put so much emphasis on the Word of God? Why do we have Scripture readings during the call to worship, in the middle of the service, after I preach? Why do we take so long to preach the Bible? Don't you know we're going to get bored? Because God's Word gives life. We believe that our God is a speaking God and that it's through His Word He accomplishes His purposes for us and in His world. His Word does what He wants it to. His words are life. And so, we submit ourselves to it. We come together during corporate worship recognizing that during this time, no matter how poor our singing, no matter how limited our attention, no matter how different we are, no matter how many people are here, that God has promised that in this assembly, there is a foretaste of heaven. God has promised that He works in a special way through the preaching of His Word during this time. We come, we come together and we approach Sunday morning, oh, this is boring, oh, I'm doing this, it's, it's, I gotta do it, I guess I gotta do it. Rather than rolling out of bed and going, you know, whatever else happens this morning, I am gathering with God's people. The music doesn't matter, we're singing to God and to one another. The preaching might not be the best, but we're hearing God's Word. I get to do something God's commanded me to do, and I am in relationship with, I'm accountable to, and I'm connected with this people. What a joy it is! Friends, if you are not rolling out of bed in the morning on Sunday morning, just over the moon about coming here to worship God, that I worry two things about you. One, I wonder if you know God at all the privilege to know and worship God. 
And then secondly, I'm concerned that, that maybe you've fallen into this 21st century trap where we worship the experience of worship on our terms and our way rather than the worship of God itself. And so we, we're only willing to get excited about church if it meets all of our felt needs. And we approach it like consumers. Rather than approaching church as a contributor, going, this is how I'm going to serve the Lord this morning. I'm going to come and I'm going to sing. I'm going to serve. I'm going to work together with my brothers and sisters in Christ to see God's glory made great. Friends, God's word has power. It's true. God calls us to gather to worship Him. And this is a blessing that should be embraced, not begrudged. We give ourselves to God's Word. We memorize it. We submit ourselves to it. We, we preach it. We teach it. Friends, let me ask you, do you think it's possible to know God and at the same time not yearn to hear Him speak? To know God is to love Him. To love His Word. I'll confess, I've been guilty of some of those things. And I've had to repent and say, God, Your Word is true. I trust it. I love it. Submit myself to it. We should yearn to hear God's Word. To hide it in our hearts so that we might not sin against Him. Brothers and sisters, don't leave the sword of the Spirit by your bedside to gather dust. The only way it will be effective for you is if you plunge it deeply into your own heart. Challenge this week. Read about how God's Word works in the, through the prophet Elisha, the book of 2 Kings. In chapter 5, you'll see great juxtaposition. The king of Israel knows some things about God, but he doesn't yearn to hear him speak, and he doesn't really know God. And yet, a little slave girl, she knows the God of Israel. And a foreigner named Naaman, well, he's transformed by God's word. God's Word works. All of these pieces of armor, as we've already said, are animated by prayer. This is how, this is the way we depend on God for strength. We pray, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. How do you approach prayer? Do you pray? Prayerlessness is faithlessness. Friends, I, I challenge you this week to just set aside five minutes. Five minutes of your free time. Maybe you need a pen and, and a pad. I don't know. Sit down and give yourself to the Word of God in prayer. Read a verse. You know, read our upcoming, we're going to be towards the end of Ephesians next week. Read those verses and just pray. 
prayer is essential. It's not our last option, it's our first response. Prayer for the Christian is not optional, it is our very oxygen. It's how we depend on God and receive His strength so that we might stand fast and fight against our great foe. Friends, when we pray, when we put on the armor of God, when we're depending on the strength of the Lord, nothing in this world can shake us because we know that great love with which God has loved us and brought us to life from the dead. This is illustrated well. The words of Iliad Wabukala, who after having 147 of his fellow Christians killed by Islamic terrorists in Kenya, responded to the slaughter with these words. We will never surrender our nation or our faith in Christ to those who glory in death and destruction. We will not be intimidated because we know and trust in the power of the cross. This is what it is to put on the full armor of God, friends. To know and trust in the power of the cross. Another example, a little bit further back in history, comes to us by way of Polycarp. He was a pastor in Ephesus. In his 84th year, he was brought up on charges. He was taunted and told to recount his faith and to depend on Caesar. He said that Caesar is Lord. And to deny the Christ who bought him. And do you, do you remember Polycarp's, Polycarp's response as he was strapped to the pyre to be burned to death for his faith in Christ? Flames licking at his heels, he said, I've updated the language a little bit, 84 years have I served Christ. He has never done me any wrong. Am I to blaspheme him now? Am I to stop trusting him now? Polycarp could say such a thing because his strength came from the Lord. His feet were on solid ground. He was able to be strapped to a pyre and burned alive because he was experiencing the truth of the gospel. He could be burned alive because he knows, he knew that Jesus hung on the cross for him. Friends, we must depend on God's strength if we are to get through this life alive. The one who trusts in Christ, though he die, yet shall he live. That we have a powerful foe, but he is defeated. And we have the equipment to stand and fight. Friends, put on the armor of God. Know and trust the power of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that indeed the power of the cross is mighty, awesome, and wonderful. Great enough to save sinners like us. The worst of the worst. Indeed, Christ's blood shed for us speaks a better word to us than the blood of Abel. We do not receive the curse that we deserve and have earned, 
but rather when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive the blessing that is due only to Him. The promise, not of death, but of being present with the Lord when we are absent from flesh. The promise, not of being buried six feet under in perpetuity, but of an open grave on the last day when Christ comes to make all things new and everything sad untrue. Lord, this is good news. And indeed, through the church, through those you have redeemed to yourself through the work of Christ, you do and will continue to make your wisdom known to our enemies and to all those beings who inhabit the unseen realm. Great is your faithfulness. We trust in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.